Welcome to Where the Big Boys Play. Welcome to 20 Years of Nitro. Today I've got for you a special bonus interview edition of the show. Uh, I had the chance last night to sit down with David Penzer, uh, former ring announcer for WCW. He was there for the entire Nitro era. He is the only person, and we talk about this on the show, uh, who attended every single episode of Monday Nitro. So he's got a unique perspective that he shares with us, uh, very generous with his time and his stories, so I appreciate that. Uh, just a couple notes before we go in um, for the sake of clarity and transparency. First would be, uh, he talks a little bit about market-specific interviews at the beginning, and if I were a better interviewer, I would have made sure that we clarified what those were, uh, because people not knowing what they were is actually kind of a part of what we talked about. A market-specific interview would be like a promo that they show more in the commercials that is specific to your local market rather than the national show. So you're sitting there watching WCW Pro, uh, and they're presenting that as a national product, but then in the commercials... Uh, Bobby Eaton comes on your screen and says, you know, hey, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, WCW is going to be there live next Saturday at the uh, the Iowa Dome. I, I don't know Cedar Rapids enough to have picked it, but uh, and, you know, he goes on to talk about maybe who he'll face at that show. Those specific promos, they would tape just a bunch of them in one day with all the different arenas and dates and then use those to promote the local events. Now, a lot of people probably do already know that. But I, I thought it was important to clarify so that you're not, uh, if you don't know that, that you're not lost when we get to that part of the show. Um, another just small thing that perhaps we should have clarified as we were talking, uh, he talks about writing with Arn and Pee-wee a lot in his relationship with Pee-wee. That would be Pee-wee Anderson, a.k.a. Randy Anderson, WCW referee. So if you weren't aware that his nickname is Pee-wee, uh, wanted to make sure to get that out there. Uh, and then... I did want to mention, uh, just in the interest, like I said, of transparency, the interview is pretty much untouched. I edited out a few times when we talked over each other or a couple little stammer ums and uhs or like a maybe an a time where Dave asked me like a, a clarifying question on the show or what I was asking and just for the sake of, of uh, ease of listening, I took that out. So otherwise, his comments are all untouched. Um, I think you'll hear that he was very candid with his thoughts. There's some difficult stuff to talk about in this episode um, because I we were talking about the Benoit and Sullivan angle um, and the attempts to kind of work the boys because that is so much a part of the timeline that we're in right now. And I wanted to get David's perspective as someone who was on the end of being worked in that. Uh, I, I wanted to ask him about that. Um, and the, the whole situation had been on his mind quite a bit because of the Dark Side of the Ring special on Chris and Nancy. So he shares his thoughts because he is and was friends with Kevin Sullivan. I think he has personal opinions and personal experiences. So that might diverge with how I look at the situation, how you look at the situation. Um, but he shares his personal views. Uh, and you know, I, I do thank him for, for being candid and for being willing to talk about that stuff. Um, you know, it wasn't, I, I wanted to ask about the angle. I, I didn't want to press him on, on talking about, you know, just these, these horrible events. So, um, you know, it, it gets a little raw as we talk about that. These were people that he was very good friends with and, and gosh, that's just a, a very difficult thing to cope with that, that I don't think most of us could possibly understand. So, um, I thank him for coming on the show and being so open and candid and, and I hope you guys like the interview. Uh, we talk about a lot of great stuff, a lot of inside baseball nitro stuff. So, uh, without further ado, my interview with David Penzer. 
My guest today was the primary ring announcer for World Championship Wrestling from 1995 until its closure in 2001, and is probably the only person who can say they attended every single episode of Monday Nitro. Please welcome to the show, David Penzer. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great. Jealous of your voice as we were talking off uh, off tape. <laughs> uh, you have a, the, a great announcing voice, and um, uh, we need to figure out something to do with that. Maybe I'll be your manager. But you are correct. Uh, I am, to the best of anyone's knowledge, the only person to be at every Monday night show. And uh, whether I had uh, horrible panic attacks, which I've battled my whole life, or whether I had 104 fever, uh, I... And I always wanted to make sure I was there because you never want to give somebody else an opportunity to take your spot. There's a lot of people out there who have good voices, as we hear, uh, some some better than mine. So uh, <laughs> so anyway, so, yeah, I was the only person at every night show. Now, when you joined WCW, you you actually had some work there pre Nitro, right? You were kind of the the B ring announcer. Well, Mike uh, Gary Michael Capetta was still there. Yeah, I started off as being a pure stooge, no ring announcing at all. And okay. um, and uh, I was bringing up uh, enhancement talent from the state of Florida. What I didn't know at the time, and how would I, is that uh, the guy who booked the enhancement talent by the name of Jody Hamilton, the masked assassin. Uh, sure. Who, if you're not familiar with, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with, is one of the better promos uh, in the history of the territory wrestling. And he's and, Nick Patrick's dad, I believe, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's Nick Patrick's dad. But um, so uh, I'm jumping ahead of my story, but uh, that's where we started. We're right here. So um, I wasn't aware that he, instead of booking 30 enhancement guys, he had somebody book five in every little area. So Italian Stallion and George South would bring up five. Rip from the Carolinas. Rip Rogers would bring down five from Louisville. I'd bring up five from Florida. Uh, Scott Demore would bring down five from uh, from uh, Canada or Detroit. Bob Starr would bring down five from Baltimore. For a while, Mike Jackson uh, brought up like 15 at a time. But when I was up there, he had a falling out. Anyway, all these, not to go on and on, but all these... Um, all these wrestlers that were booked through the individual bookers, they paid a booking fee. Uh, WCW would cover the rental car, or rental van, and the gas. They wouldn't. But th the thing is, is that if I'm if I'm Rip Rogers and I um, I'm booked as an enhancement guy and I book five guys, I'm making my enhancement money plus the extra money. Mm -hmm. I was an enhancement guy and they didn't have a spot for me at the time, so it was purely I was making $125. A week, if they did a double shot, I'd make 250 for driving all the way from South Florida to wherever it was, Atlanta, Alabama, and back. But when I was there, getting back to your original question, uh, I decided that if this was my chance to break in, I was going to make the most of it. So I just I went up to Jim Ross, who was in charge of the market-specific interviews, which people these days don't even know what those were, which is a whole <laughs> different story. But uh, I was talking to a young wrestler who has a lot, uh, the other day who has a lot, a lot of potential. And I was telling him a story about Chris Jericho living in the gray box out in the parking lot when we did uh, market specs interviews. And that was how he learned how to talk on a microphone. 
and that he should, you know, take any opportunity he has to do any kind of interview, whether it was digital or, or you know, internet or anything. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, I, I and, and he looked at me and said, what's a market-specific interview? And I wanted to slap him. But uh, <laughs> it is what it is. So anyway, you'll find I jump around a lot. I have ADD, so I apologize. Usually when no, I do, no, that's fine. Usually when I do my podcast, I have notes, so I try to stay on some kind of uh, even pattern. So anyway, I decided that um, I was going to uh, go up to Jim Ross and see if he needed people to run wrestlers for the for the market-specific interviews. At some point, I had started taking over. There was a sign-in sheet that everybody had to sign, and what it was really was a lot of small print that ended up being a release that said that um, uh, what they're filming, uh, they have the total right to forever, which is why... Uh, I, I'm not picking on. Well, he let's let's take Junkyard Dog for example because he's passed. Um, what a great guy too. He named me Walking Man because all I did all day was walking around getting <laughs> stuff signed and running guys for interviews. But um, but say say Junkyard Dog. Um, say he wanted revenue if he was still alive. Lord willing, I would that would be cool. He was a great guy. Um, he wanted revenue for the uh WCW stuff that's on. Uh, WWE Network, and he went to a lawyer and said, "I never signed anything that said they could use my." Well, he did. He signed that sign-in sheet. Oh, wow. He just didn't read it, and it said that whoever has ownership of the tapes has the opportunity to air it, and you have nothing you could, you know, in legal. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Right, right, right. Not a lawyer. So that was that sheet, and then they uh, Jody put me in charge of all the new enhancement guys from all the different people that brought them up. I had to fill out their thing. And then I just I just started doing more things, running off the formats once we uh, went after the production meeting uh, for the because uh, back then they filled in the it was like they'd have like Ric Flair versus blank. And then Jody would go ahead and write in the names once he knew what enhancement talent was there. So I'd, I'd run those off and give them out to the agents and the producer production. So it was just I was a total stooge. I was laughing with Scott DeMore the other day on the phone. And he was like, it's funny how far, how things have changed. Um, I used to be your stooge. You were a stooge and I was your, I was the stooge's stooge. <laughs> so I've come a long way. And I said, yeah, but I haven't. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still a stooge. Did you grow up a wrestling fan? Was that, you know, were you just happy to, to be there working on the product any way you could just because it was something you had always wanted to get into? Huge wrestling fan. When I was 11 years old, uh, through the long set of circumstances that I don't want to bore everybody through, my cousin was uh, a cousin of mine was living with me in my in my room, and um, for a short period of time. And he one day at Saturday at noon, he said, "Hey, you should turn on wrestling on Channel Six. And I said, "What is wrestling on Channel Six? And he goes, "Turn it on." And I got to see Dusty Rhodes, Superstar Billy Graham, Ox Baker, Ernie Ladd. Um, just made the assassin Joe LaDuke, uh, just amazing talent. And I fell in love with it on the spot. Uh, I probably, if there was a week I didn't watch it, it was probably cause I was on a vacation with my parents and there was no, no VCR. If it, once VCR happened, uh, I taped everything I could and watched it, but, um, I was hooked and, um, went to my first, uh, live show. Uh, a few weeks later, my dad took me to a place called the Fort Lauderdale National Guard Armory. They ran, they did a split show in, in the Florida Territory every Friday night. 
half the talent went to Tallahassee and half the talent went to Fort Lauderdale because both buildings were smaller. So there was only like four matches on those shows. If you got a five match card, you were lucky. But um, but yeah, the main event was Ox Baker versus Ernie Ladd, uh, Kevin Sullivan and team with Mike Graham. Uh, Steve Kern wrestled Dutch Mantel. So uh, uh, it's cool that I I either got to know or have gotten, you know, still if either people that have deceased like Ox and 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 Mike, I've got to know them or, or have, you know, still gotten to be friends with a lot of the people that were at that first show that I was at. But I knew, you know, jumping ahead, I knew that there was I had no athletic ability Uh when I used to, my dad used to coach a uh, uh, baseball, little league baseball, because my dad has a li- had a little bit of athletic ability, and um, and when I used to go up to the plate, you could hear the entire, uh, and it's not the vis- the, the the opposing section. It was our team's uh, uh, fans, the parents, and all that, and they would groan, "Oh Jesus, the coach's son!" It's an automatic out. <laughs> so, 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 so I knew at a very young age that I did not have the coordination or athletic ability to do anything. I couldn't even do T-ball. So, <laughs> so wrestling was out of the question. So I went about it a different way. And, and, uh, you know, if you look back at the chances that I had, it probably was one in a million, but, uh, I got, I got some luck and a lot of hard work on my end and never give up, uh, you know, there's a lot of times I could have given up and said, you know, this is, you know, what am I wasting my time for? But um, I was I was going to see if I could do it. And by God, it happened. So it was around 95 when they decided to make a change and uh, they release Gary Capetta and they hand over ring announcing duties to you. Were you excited to have a more regular spot on television? Was that, you know, call up the parents and brag you're, you're going to be on TV every Saturday night kind of thing? You know, we didn't know what Nitro was going to be, so really, no, not at that time. By the mm-hmm. way, just to be clear, Gary Capetta uh, didn't didn't re-sign his contract. They very much wanted him back. He told oh, is me, his Wikipedia is wrong then? He, he told me from a year out. He said because I was you, getting back to your original question that I've uh, gone over my whole life, except for answering your original question. About '93, I did get a, the backup ring announcer's job. I would did most of the house shows unless it was a big one or. When Hogan came in, if Hogan was on, Gary would do it. Sure. And I would do the syndicated shows that they, you know, those shows, they did those uh, market specifics that nobody remembers um, uh, for. And then Gary would do the Saturday night show. And sometimes he would do, I guess, worldwide and stuff. I think I was on pro. But anyway, that doesn't really matter. But he told me a year out, he said, and this is before anybody knew about Nitro, he said, I'm not resigning next year. And I was kept saying, yeah, 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 you were. Yeah, you will. I for a, a second in my head until like, you know, like a couple of months beforehand when it was obvious he wasn't, did I ever think he wasn't going to resign? Yeah. And, uh, you know, for him, it was a cushy gig. He was making good money. I don't know what mm. it was, but I know it was good. Uh, he only had to work the big, the main TVs, the clash of the champions, WCW Saturday night and, and one or two house shows a month. So, why not? Why not stay there? And he had had enough. Uh, I think I, I don't want to quote him, but I think there was a part of him that was annoyed that Michael Buffer was coming in to do the main events of the pay-per-views. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that's the only reason he left. In fact, I know it's not. But I think that, that sort of annoyed him to the point where he started uh, saying, you know, if 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 
you know, I do the whole show and then you pay Michael Buffer all this money, then why don't you pay me big money too? And I think that they reached an impasse. I know at the end they tried to salvage it, but he by then it had his mind made up. So about once once I, I accepted the fact that he was really leaving, he really started showing me the ropes and telling me secrets and, you know, because the whole ring announcing thing, it, it, you know, it, it's not talking in the microphone and introducing a match. Uh, you could write that out. I've done that before. I did that probably for the first four or five years of my until I got to know the talent. Um, I wrote every word for everything I was going to announce out and I just read it. The, the, the hard part is entertaining, especially for TV, is entertaining the crowd. Um, you know, there are times where there are 10, 15 minute uh, tape changes or breaks or something happened in the truck. Something happens backstage. You have to keep those fans entertained. So, right. you know, and, and, and there's times where there was back then that there was they did three hours of shows. So you would have 15 matches and most of them were squash matches. So he just gave me a lot of great hints that really helped me. Uh, to this day, and th- I, I really wasn't ex- that excited uh, that you know I was actually really nervous because I had to be the main guy, and you know I didn't know if Eric had the faith in me that he had in Gary, um, and I think at the beginning he probably didn't, which I totally understand. And um, and no, none of us knew what Nitro was going to be, man. I mean, we could look back and we talk about the Mon- Monday Night Wars and all that. Uh, the only thing I knew is that. We had gone from about 800 people at house shows to about 2,000 because of the Ric Flair versus Randy Savage uh, angle. Right. Uh, so I knew that business was getting better, but in my wildest dreams, I had no idea. You know, when we did this Nitro thing, I figured, uh, you know, I think both, I think we got a 2-5 and they got a 2-3 or they got a 2-5 and we got a 2-3 the first week. I would have thought they, they got a 3-1 and we would get a 1-1. You know, and I think even mm-hmm. Eric, I think everybody was surprised. I'm not speaking out of turn. I think oh, everybody, sure, yeah. everybody was surprised. I mean, the whole thing kind of happened on a dare. Turner looked at Eric out of the blue and said, you know, what, what do you need to compete with Vince McMahon? And Eric, thinking it would never happen, said, put me head to head on Monday Night Live. Right. And, and Turner said, done. And Eric said, holy shit, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Are we allowed to curse on this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not we, a... I'm we, not we a I'm not a heavy cursor, but uh, uh, just wanted to. But uh, so then he had to figure something out. And I guess it was, you know, really, if you look back, it was the fact that his back was against the wall. He came up with the Luger thing that stunned everybody, including 98% of the talent in production. And uh, and 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 it was the beginning of, uh, of a fun ride. So, yeah, at, at some point, I, at, you know, once you realize that this thing is, you know, you're selling out the United Center, you're selling out the, the the Georgia Dome. You know, you start pinching yourself and saying, holy, holy crap, what did I get? You know, what did I luck myself into? But at the very beginning, it was more like, uh, you know, we might do this for a couple of weeks and then uh, they'll pull the plug on it type thing. Now, as it that success starts to build and as you guys start to get ratings win after ratings win, I'm curious, is that like a something that you guys are talking about? amongst yourself or is it really just bischoff that's concerned about ratings week to week uh 
or you know, I'm just curious, is that something where you're all feeling that momentum or is it you're just showing up and doing your job and, and let corporate worry about television ratings? No, no. I mean, I think because Eric made such a big deal out of them, I think everybody was hyper focused on the ratings. I can't speak as much for the boys, but yeah, they want they were curious. I mean, at this point, it's a competition. And if you're on one side, whether you like the boss or you want to be on the other side or you, you think the company's crap, when you're on one side, you still want to know how your side's doing. And so, yeah, it was every, you know, it was a big deal every week when uh, when the ratings would come out and, you know, maybe not as hyper focused as Eric and the bookers and 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 those in charge. But, yeah, it was it was it was a big deal for pretty much everybody. There might have been a few that said, you know, I could care less, but uh, it was it was a big deal all around pretty much. Now, I'm curious, one thing that we've wondered about as we watch these nitros and we're just to give you some idea, we're in early uh, 1997 it's funny you mentioned selling out the united center we just watched the first nitro where you guys are from the united center and there's 17,000 screaming fans there so that's it's a lot of fun watching this period where all of a sudden it's you're going from 4,000 people in baton rouge louisiana and then three weeks later it's like all of a sudden the thing's just off like a rocket and there's 10 11 12 17,000 people there uh, but I'm curious, as as far as the production goes, we've noticed that if you watch the WWF product, it seems like they really put their ring announcers front and center. Uh, you know, Finkel is like a character. He's on screen a lot. Lillian Garcia, Justin Roberts. It seems a lot on Nitro that at least for the first year, two years that, that we've watched, your audio is often kind of low in the mix. And sometimes Shivani is is kind of talking right over you. I'm wondering if that's something that you've noticed, too, that they didn't feature you as prominently as as compared to the other company. And is that something that you guys ever talked about? Was there ever was that a conscious production choice to to keep the ring announcing more as a live event thing and and not televise it as much? Two things. Number one is WWE, F, whatever, while they are hyper focused on the ring announcer on the shows. Uh, and they, they take everything they say and, and sit and, and sit out, which is uh, inside verbiage, I guess, for not talk. Um, they uh, they all, they don't have the ring announcers entertaining the live crowd. They don't have them say anything. They use videos or music or so it's it's sort of a, a different type of thing. My job was there to entertain the live crowd, not so much be the ring announcer on the, on the TV show. Sure. And but theirs was different. Um and it had always been like that. It wasn't like anybody changed. from from the moment I got there. It had always been like that in both mm-hmm. companies. But um, it was a production uh, uh, deal when I, when I first started out for Gary because Gary they took Gary's uh, announcing almost all the time because Gary was uh, a well known commodity in all, all the three major companies at the time and. Uh, so they felt like it was important to do that. When I started doing it, Eric came up to me. Uh, probably the only time Eric ever asked my permission, not my permission, but my opinion about anything decision he made. But, um, uh, he, and that's not a shot against Eric. It was just, uh, I was shocked. And, um, he said, I'll never forget. It was in Marietta, Georgia. And he said, no, I'm sorry, Gainesville, Georgia. And he said, we're going to try something different. I think we waste so much time sitting out for the announcers and for the ring announcing when we could be promoting our merchandise we could be promoting where we're going to be wrestling we could be promoting future shows what the main event is uh, would you be offended uh if i d- didn't play you online and i looked at him and i said eric as long as the check clears 
I'm living my dream. <laughs> that's a that's a decision. That's your pay grade. It's not my pay grade. Whatever you want to do, uh, I'm just happy to be here. So that's how I pretty much was almost the whole time. The only time you'd really ever hear me is if like I did a main event or if they would throw to me, like pitch to me, like on a pay-per-view when there weren't commercial mm-hmm. breaks. They had to pitch to something. So they would pitch to me and they'd have me online. And it never it never bothered me. Uh, I knew my job. I knew my role. I was there for the fans. And any time that I could be on TV, um, that was just extra. So did that kind of laid back attitude towards it, did that help you not develop those same feelings about Michael Buffer that maybe Gary Capetta had? I understand Gary Capetta. We're in a, we're in a totally different league at the time. And I'm not even sure. saying that I'm in his league at all. Mm-hmm. Um People remember some people remember me more because the Monday Night Wars, and a lot of people remember him more because of his uh, his 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 length of work that he put together, and so many uh, you know so many big matches and so many big you know in, in a lot of different promotions, and one of the few guys who at at one time was able to do WWF, WCW, and AWA at the same time before he signed exclusively with WCW. So um, you know I'm not, but but. Uh, I'm sorry. Now I forgot the the question. Well, my question is: Did you did were you ever resentful of the fact that those oh, big main events were going to buffer? Of, of Michael Buffer? No, I'm a big believer in capitalism and the American dream. And Michael Buffer came up with an awesome catchphrase and had the voice and the execution to pull it off. And it excited people. And I didn't. I mean, you know, I could have. I guess I could have tried. Uh, I really, you know, after Let's Get Ready to Rumble, you know, in boxing, almost everybody tried. You know, Jimmy Lennon was It's Time, which is a little bit of a stretch from Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Um, Bruce, I think, has something. But, you know, Let's Get Ready to Rumble is a once in a lifetime uh, line and and delivery that nobody's ever going to be able to redo. So instead of trying to create something of my own, I just let the fans enjoy Let's Get Ready to Rumble. It never bothered me at all. Michael Buffer was always, always a uh a gentleman and was 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 always supportive uh he actually he saw he was doing a boxing match at a casino in south florida a few years ago my brother was living down there and he went to the the matches or he saw him in a bar i don't know the exact story and he said hi i'm I'm david penzer's brother he goes oh he goes let me tell you something and you need to tell this to your brother i'm not saying this to brag i'm just showing you what a gracious guy michael is he said he said i had a catchphrase your brother had talent. <laughs> oh, that's which, very which, nice. Yeah, which means which means a lot. And yeah, it's, sort of, yeah. it's, it's 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 kind of true. But unfortunately, the catchphrase was worth a lot more than the talent. And that's just <laughs> the way life is. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. As uh, as you took over the ring announcing and we're going around doing that on Nitro, did you continue having those other duties, being a gopher backstage, or how did your role develop off screen? No, because at that time, um, as it grew, we, they hired people to do stuff like that. I mean, for a little while I did, but then it got what – what I did is I changed to production. I went to the production side of it. So we we're talking about those mar- market-specific interviews. I was the producer for those. So it was my responsibility to get the list of what needed to be shot, get the – make sure that Gene – Later on, me, I did it at the very end for about six or eight months. Uh, and I think Lee Marshall for a little while, too. Um, but make sure that we had the announcing and, and all that and then go out and get the talent to do it. Because, you you know, you could only use Jimmy Hart for so many cities and, you know, before you're repeating yourself. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I moved to production. And then when, when um, 
this is when we had no thunder. Um, so I would go back the next day or the day later and we'd, it would be my job to edit the, I didn't actually do the editing. I had an editor, but to produce the, that with an editor into the, all the shows. So I had moved to a di different sphere. I was just trying to do as, look, there's a lot of ring announcers out there. You have a better voice than I do. I'm not going to lie. Um, uh, you know, you could have been Eric's uncle. I mean, Eric's cousin and who called and said, hey, cousin Eric, you know, I got a good voice. Could I be a ring announcer? Yeah. <laughs> well, I got this Penzer guy, but I'll, I'll do you a favor. And, um, you know, and I could have been back on on WCW Pro. So I wanted to knowing that I want not not it's not that I didn't have a confidence in what I did, but, you know, nothing's fair. Nothing. You know, life isn't fair sometimes. So uh, I wanted to learn, do as many things as I could. So since my boss uh, as a ring announcer was Tony Schiavone, who was executive producer, it made sense for me to go and work in production. And so that's what I did. And then I, I went from that. I did that for about four years. And then I went and worked with Terry Taylor and talent relations and was assistant talent relations manager, which I, I liked a lot more than production. Towards the end, I was actually on the booking committee. And if things would have gone the way they planned with Eric buying the company, uh, John Laurinaitis was going to be Eric's right-hand man, and I was going to be John Laurinaitis's assistant. So mm. I'm, I, I don't say this to sound cocky, but I'm convinced that if that if WCW were still alive today and had stayed alive throughout this whole time, that I'd be an executive vice president of something. I was sort of on the fast track, and a lot of that is because my, my me working my ass off because I love doing it, so it wasn't work. Uh, and I know people are going to say, oh, Penzer's full of himself. But I, I even <laughs> I even think you, I even think like Laurinaitis or even maybe a Bischoff. Bischoff wasn't as aware of the stuff I was doing because back then he was, you know, I was Russo was there and he was there and he was phoning in a lot of stuff from from uh, from his home. And so but he wasn't sitting in, in booking meetings. But um, but yeah, yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, but you, you can't look back and say, what if, what if, you know, it didn't happen. Right. So, you know, I could be vice president of the United States, but it didn't happen. So you can't can't dwell on it towards the end of 96 and then beginning of 97. Roddy Piper returns to WCW. He's he's heavily involved in storylines. Um, I read on, on your Wikipedia, I, which hopefully is more accurate than Gary Capetta's, that you managed his book tour later. So there must have been some relationship there. What was it like having Roddy come in and, and what was he like uh, off camera? The, the relationship with Roddy Piper started in the XWF, which was in 2002 after oh, that's right. yep. CW closed. I had no relationship with Roddy Piper uh, during that time. I mean, he was he was nice. He would say hello. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he, he, he had his own dressing room and his own little group of uh, people that that traveled with him and entourage. And um, and so, you know, it was, you know, I didn't get to know him back then. But as a wrestling fan growing up, my three favorite wrestlers were Dusty Rhodes, um, Terry Funk and uh, uh, Roddy Piper. So, you know, I was working for Dusty because Dusty was in and out, but involved a lot. Uh, you know, I later got to be friends with Terry and then I got to work for Roddy. So uh, and, and a cool story, not to get off subject, but um, uh, I uh, did an insane clown posse show uh, that they you know, they used to do those those shows in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And the uh, gathering of the Juggalos. 
and the wrestling show didn't start till like one o'clock in the morning and they didn't <laughs> they were they, they they were so un- unorganized and and it didn't matter because their fans loved them so they could be unorganized that it it didn't start till like 2 30 and end at like five yeah. <laughs> and so the main event for that show was roddy piper versus terry funk and oh, wow. um so uh, driving back to the hotel um i had brought a bottle of vodka because i figured it was going to be a long drive back and i like to have a couple of drinks after i ring announced never before um and uh so i'm sitting there with roddy and terry and they're telling stories and roddy wasn't drinking at the time but terry and me started we didn't have anything to mix it with started doing shots out of the bottle of uh of vodka and uh and 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 got to listen to them for two and a half hours while we're drinking while I'm drinking with Terry Funk doing shots tell stories. Now the negative part about that was by the time we got home, I had about two hours before I had to catch my flight and I was hammered. And my <laughs> wife and I called my wife and I told her what happened and she said, "You're gonna miss your flight, aren't you?" And I said, "No, no, 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 no. I'll order breakfast. I'll I'll sober up, and um, and I'll get on the flight." Well, I fell asleep and missed the flight. So I had to hear about that for a while, but, 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 but having, having, having her tell me, I told you so, I'd have to drink so much, uh, for a few months or a few weeks, whatever it is, uh, far was, 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 was well worth the experience that I got to have with two of my all time favorites growing up. Now we saw on the nitro that we just watched recently, which was January 20th, 97, uh, there was an angle they did where the NWO had attacked, um, oh, and gosh, I can't even remember who it was. They attacked somebody, uh, and you announced the disqualification, and then they cornered you and forced you to change it to a. Uh, they kind of roughed you up a little bit and forced you to change it to a countout. That was kind of the first time that we saw an angle where you were, you know, getting anyone was getting physical with you. Of course, that was expanded later in the year with the stuff that you did with Chris Jericho in ninety seven, ninety eight. Was that something you enjoyed? Did you get like being a part of those angles and getting kind of tossed around, having your jacket torn off? Um, yeah, I mean, in, in TNA, I got, I did a deal with, uh, Kurt Angle and, uh, and he didn't mean to do it, but Kurt, uh, he, he, he kind of got carried away. So I didn't enjoy that. Although I got Ooh, a, five, yeah. although I got a $500 bonus, uh, I'll send you, <laughs> I'll send you over a picture of what I looked like after it was over. And, uh, and you could put it up to promote this podcast if you sure. want to. So, and and <laughs> sure. Kurt was the, the Kurt still to this day, whenever he sees me, he gives me a hug and says, "I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you." I'm like, Kurt, it's fine. It was, it was, it, it, it my, fa- my swelling went down in a few days. So, but um, but so that wasn't the highlight of my life. But yeah, it's fun. It's fun participating. It's fun being a part of it. You know, why wouldn't it be uh, fun to be part of it? Fun to get some recognition. Uh, yeah, sure. And it seems like you and Jericho had a good relationship off screen too. It was probably fun to pal around with your buddy on camera yeah um i drove with uh different groups of people at different times depending on who was on the the loops but um most of the time i would e- either drive with it started out as arn and peewee uh because peewee's the one who took me under his wing and uh when i first started on the road and i didn't think about it till much later but he i was getting my car paid for and my hotel room paid for and my gas paid for Oh, because you're an employee. Up, yeah, so he came up to me and he wanted. He, he said, "Hey, I'll, I'll ride with you and I'll teach you the road." And I'm I'm sure that, uh, you know, his, his thought was, "Hey, 
you know, I'm going to save myself a couple hundred dollars a loop. <laughs> but that's great because we used yeah. each other because he taught me the road and he taught me the wrestling business and he taught me what you what you say in the locker room and what you don't say and and, and how you do certain things. And, uh, you know, when they when the company got cheap and maybe they didn't want to fly me to a certain town, he had a lot of uh, points and he would use his points to fly me. And we ended up becoming very good friends. Our families were friends. So, you know, what might have started out is I use you, you use me. We all get something out of it. But so I started driving with Arn and Pee Wee. And then sometimes I drive with uh, a combination of Jericho, Benoit, uh, Malenko, Mark Curtis, uh, Hugh Morris, Chavo Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero. I think that's it. That and, is a um, fun group of people and, and, to travel with. So, yeah, me and Jericho hit it off and uh, we lost touch for a while. We would still text every now and then, but he um, he had some trouble with a, a, a realtor when he was trying to sell his uh, house, um, his old house last year. So he hired me because that's what I do. And uh, he was very, and we, it, he, he even, he's even said uh, on my podcast, he was a guest on my podcast uh, at the beginning of the year. And he even said that uh, one of the highlights of me uh, being his realtor is that we got to reconnect again. So uh, I was invited to his, uh, he renewed his vows on new year's Eve with his, lovely wife, Jessica. And, um, I was the only non-relative to have been at both weddings, the one in Winnipeg and the one and the renewal of vows. Oh, wow. So, so we stay in touch a little bit, you know, mostly, mostly by text. No, no, no wrestlers really want to talk on the phone when they're home, but mostly by text. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, but yeah, we, we always sort of had a chemistry. We have the same type of humor, sense of humor. The only difference is he he could he creates that type of humor and laughs at it. I just laugh at it. But uh, <laughs> I I've been telling him, you know, watching this AEW stuff, I've been telling him I, certain times I think he says a line or does a vignette just for my entertainment because I I know he doesn't, but that's how similar our our, our sense of humor is because uh, I'll look and I'll say, God, if I didn't know better, I'd swear he did that just to get pop me. Right. You know. Now you mentioned, and and don't worry, this this question is not going to go down the road uh, that I, you know no one wants to go down. But you mentioned Benoit being uh, a guy that rode with you. Right now we talk a lot because we're again we're in early '97 and we're talking a lot. He's doing the this program with Kevin Sullivan, the heated stuff. This is where you know woman has been placed with Benoit, and we're reading a lot in the dirt sheets, uh, you know, and and how much they might be accurate is certainly up for debate, but that Benoit and Nancy at this point are making out in bars very conspicuously, but that they're doing it. This is at the point where it's encouraged by Kevin Sullivan. You know, they're trying to work the boys as they say. And we just, we read these now with, with hindsight and just think, you know, was anyone possibly worked by that angle? Was anyone actually buying that at the time? What were your memories of kind of the beginning of that angle and, and anything where, you know, it did seem like they were trying to to work an angle to to get one over on the rest of the the roster. Well, they he had already done the angle with Brian Pillman, so everybody was suspicious for sure. Right. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna get into this, and uh, you probably didn't think I would go there, but um, uh, I'm uniquely not one of the unique people that was very involved in in both sides of that whole thing. Kevin had taken me under his wing at that point. I was even, he would book the nitros and the, the shows and I, he would read them to me and I would from the front seat and I'd sit the back seat and I'd write them out and write out his ideas. And, um, he was teaching me, you know, what worked and what didn't. And, 
And him and Nancy started way before, probably three or four months before uh, this whole thing with Chris even started. Uh, they just weren't getting along. Um, mm-hmm. They 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 just, you know, look, people grow apart and they seem to be growing apart and they would try to reconcile. Um, and so I think that, you know, I've talked to Kevin since then and he, he pretty much knew by that point that his his marriage was doomed. Did he think that Benoit with a with a, a wife with who was pregnant with a, a kid was going to you know uh, fall for Nancy and vice versa? I don't think he thought that. But I think at the same time, you know, I don't think he booked it because he wanted to try to find Nancy a new husband. But uh, but I don't. But I think that he knew in his heart of hearts that their relationship was on the 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 outs. I I even believe um, for a while. I know actually that um, they weren't even living together at certain times. That 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 uh, during those months when they wouldn't go home, she would go to, I think Daytona. He would go to the house in the Keys. So. And then, you know, I traveled with Benoit and Benoit also lived in Peachtree City. And there was a group of us with, and our wives who uh, all ended up hanging out. It was uh, Steve, who's now William Regal and his wife, um, Dave Taylor and his wife, Fit Finley and his wife, uh, Chris and originally his wife and then Nancy. And then um, it was a guy named Darwin who was a longtime cameraman and uh, his wife uh, who – we were still actually very close with, but we would all go out on the weekends or when there was time off, we'd go to this place called Ginza was a Japanese steakhouse and we'd go get, 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 all get hammered and sing karaoke. And, um, we, we got to see a side of Chris that, um, that nobody else got to see, uh, never did in a million years that I think what happened was going to happen, but I was not surprised when I heard it happen. I knew exactly what, I didn't know which order it happened, but I, when I was told what happened, uh, I wasn't I, it wasn't like, oh, you know, I wonder if somebody came in and murdered him. I knew it was mm-hmm. whatever happened, it happened inside that house. And ironically enough, he had pulled himself so far out of that group when the cracks began to show that, oh, Johnny Grunge and his wife were also involved. Um, love Johnny Grunge. And uh, he had pulled himself so far out of that that none of us even though he moved. The, the most surprising part of that whole story wasn't God forbid what he did. But it was that he had moved and nobody knew. Oh wow! Uh, they they had moved. Um, yeah. So so I had a unique uh, just to set the stage, you know, between the whole. I, I kind of saw it from the from. Unfortunately, I, I, I to look back at this, it's been it's been real tough. Uh, me and my wife both had a really hard time watching part one of the the Dark Side of the Ring. Um, yeah. I finally watched part two last night. Um, I'm going to give my thoughts on my podcast, so I don't want to get into that because I promised on my podcast that when I finally watched it, I would. It will, but I, what I'll say is it wasn't as tough to watch. Uh, my wife had already watched it when I was uh, I was doing something else, and uh, she had watched it, and she said, you know, it's not as bad as part one because part one's the whole setup of, that we live through. Right. Um, so, so I finally watched it and, you know, I'm all right. And, you know, I've said a lot about the subject. I've discussed it with Jericho on his podcast I just, and my podcast. I discussed it with Chavo on my podcast. By the way, I keep referring to my podcast. It's called City Ringside with David Penzer. Drop, it drops every Monday at uh, in the morning. If you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. Uh, and we have usually a little bit of my thoughts on what's going on and then a guest uh 
a, it could be a legend, it could be a, a ring announcer, it could be a referee, a up and coming wrestler, women wrestling, male wrestlers. Uh, we had Christy Hemme on a few weeks ago. Um, we've had Terry Funk, Eric Bischoff. It's funny, a lot of the the, the, the ones that are that are really entertaining aren't the ones you'd think would be entertaining. We just had Scott Tomore on there to, talking about Impact Wrestling and to plug the TNA uh, episode that I <coughs> did the play-by-play for. And um, <laughs> and so uh, so anyway, yeah, sitting ringside, I'd love for you to give it a try. And if you like it, subscribe, tell your friends and uh, wrestling fans. That's the only time I'll plug it because I know this is your show. But going back, I finally watched it. It wasn't as bad as the first one, but the whole thing's a freaking nightmare. Yeah. Uh, nobody's ever going to understand. Some people like me might have more of an understanding than guys like Jericho and, and Chavo who didn't see that side. But, you know, like I said, while I wasn't surprised when I heard what happened, that know that it happened in that house. Uh, I, I, if you listen to William and, and they, they, they showed this in the, in the second part of the, uh, dark side of the ring. If you listen to William Regal on the night that he died, William Regal will only talk about Chris as a wrestler. Will not talk Chris about Chris right. as a person because yep. he knew. He he knew too. Yeah. Uh, and and it was that group of people that we knew and 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 we got to see a part of Chris that nobody ever wanted him to see. And when he realized that happened, like I said, he pulled away totally. And um, you know, it just sucks. Uh, you know that he wanted to do that to himself. Uh, that's 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 bad. You know, you, you're gonna do that to your wife. That's horrible. You're going to do that to your son. That's, uh, you know, as inexcusable as, as, as it gets. But um, we all have to carry on with it and, and live our lives. And, and you know, but it still hurt. It still hurts when it all starts being dredged up. Yeah. Uh, and you have to relive it again because it was it was it was tough. I remember having Jericho on the phone for hours. He could not understand. And I still think there's part of him that can't understand how Chris could have done that. Uh, I still think there's a part of, and I tried to explain what I had seen and he didn't want to believe it. And he, you know, he, he, he wanted to search for a million different reasons. And I, I don't know what he settled on, even though we've talked in length about it on and off air. Um, I'm not sure what he settled on. I think he's just settled on the fact that the Chris Benoit that he knew became a person that he didn't know and, and a monster, but that he didn't, but he wants to remember him as the person he knew and as the wrestler that he uh, idolized and, and and tried to be like. And that's fair. That's fair. There's no right answer in play in things like that. And I don't want to put words in Chris's mouth. I think that's what he's come up with. But he had a really hard time, uh, more than probably anybody else that I spoke to. And I spoke to a lot of people because it got out that, you know, I wasn't surprised. So people wanted to know what was going on. Mm. Uh, at one point, Dateline NBC was like banging down my door to interview me. And I was like, this is a time that Nancy Grace was was blowing everything right. up and i was like yeah. ah, I, I i don't want anything to do with any of this so um so anyway that probably went a little deeper than um than you thought i was but it's, it's been on the brain um yeah. i i also listened to um to uh kevin sullivan on the jim Cornette podcast uh i will tell you from what i know and i don't know everything i didn't even know that nancy had stabbed him actually uh but from what, and I was as close, like I said, as you could be. But from what I know, uh, everything that Kevin said on that podcast was 100% true to the best of my knowledge, just as an FYI. Interesting. I, that, I have not listened to that yet. But. I said that on my podcast this week. I, 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 you know, because I'm so involved I, and he's never talked about it, I listened intently. And 
you know, everybody kind of gets their facts wrong or their timeline wrong. And, you know, he was straight, he was straight up a hundred percent of what he said that I was aware of was true. Now I was not with them a hundred percent of the time or close to it. I can't, I'm not going to, you know, point fingers and say, this person said this and they're lying or this per, or he didn't, you know, or this was wrong. I don't know. All I can tell you is what I know personally. What I know personally is I never saw as mad as Kevin got at her. I never saw Kevin uh, put his hands on her and he got mad at her. And uh, so I, I never saw it. But that doesn't mm. mean it never happened, but you have to take him at his word. It never did. But and um, and everything that he said on that podcast, like I said, to the best of my knowledge, is true. And he didn't ask me to say that. I haven't really talked to him since I, I heard it. I just thought I think that's fair. You know, I, I think that's a fair point, because after all this time and all this tragedy and, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, Kevin, Kevin still had a place in his heart for Nancy. He knew that he had moved on and he knew that that, you know, they had grown apart and all that. But, you know, you, you don't have a 13, 14, 15 year relationship with somebody and not care about them. And he was very hurt. And there was a lot of people pointing fingers at him. And I'm sure that had to hurt. And he was very close for the time he was with Nancy, with her parents and really felt for them because uh, nobody they didn't you know uh, you know there's a lot of people out there talking Chris's dad and 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 different wrestlers and you know different news people and 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 you know so-called experts on steroids uh, and concussions but um, you know you never heard from from the people from the the parents who lost their daughter and and their grandson so um, you know, Kevin Sullivan's a tough guy and Kevin Sullivan, um, uh, you know, you go out there and you see him and, you know, beat the heck out of job guys or you see him. And, and look, he, he, I'm not saying he's the second coming of, uh, of the Lord himself, but he, he has a heart. And mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of felt bad watching that ep- that first episode for him because all of a sudden he's like, I'm back in this freaking thing. Why? You know, I just leave me alone. You know, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, you know, we, we our marriage didn't work out. Whatever, even if it even if it was true, that even if you say, okay, I know for a fact, like, and I'm sorry to get off on a tangent, but it's pretty it's pretty uh, it's pretty you know fresh in people's minds. So I'm hoping that I'm giving you some good content. Um, but uh, even if you say, okay, he gave her a black eye. Even if you say that that's true, which he denies, and I I, I don't know anybody that ever saw anything like that. But even if you say, okay, that's true, we know that for a fact. He was arrested and taken downtown, which didn't happen. Um, even if you say that's true, why did they have to bring that up on the, the special that well, what they were doing? What did that have to do with anything? It, it, you know, I understand telling the story of uh, him booking yeah. himself out of. I understand having to tell the story of him booking himself out of his own marriage. That's a part of the story, but of how Chris and Nancy got together. But 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 even if you say it's 100 percent true, and by the way, I don't condone a man hitting a woman. I, I think it's one of the mo- more vile things that a man could do uh, uh, and a whole long list of vile things men can do if they want to they want to if they're not good people. But um, especially to a woman. But but I'm just uh, my point is, why bring it up? What did you get out of what did that change one iota of the story, assuming it was true? It had nothing to do with Chris's situation and 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 his decline. It had nothing to do with the decisions he ultimately made at the end of his life. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I just I don't know. I uh, but I'm not pointing fingers at anybody every you know, maybe he maybe maybe 
she had a black eye. Maybe he gave it to her. Maybe he didn't. I, I don't know. Honestly, don't know. I could just tell you what I saw and and I what I know. And um, and, and that's all anybody could do. So my, your question was how much how, how now that we get back to your question, your question was how much were people buying the Benoit uh, uh, Sullivan stuff? Like I said, because of the Pillman thing, which really fooled everybody, they were um, they they were a little dubious. But you know, it started gaining some traction when Nancy started staying in Kevin's in, <laughs> right. in, uh, in 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 Chris's room. I mean, you know, that that can only happen even if you're faking that and you're sleeping in separate beds. You know, you know, especially when when. I guess both of their marriages were having difficulties. I didn't know really that Chris's was. I knew he was unhappy for a long time, but he was, his wife was pregnant. He was excited about having another baby. But, um, but who, who, who would have, you know, it, it, it's just human nature. You stick two people, two attractive people in a room, uh, you know, even if it was just pretending for a while, at some point they're going to say, hey, what if we tried this? Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know if that's how it happened, uh, but... Yeah, when she started staying in Chris's room and, and, and riding with Chris and stuff like that, it became apparent that there was more to the story. And, and while it might have started and it did start as a work, uh, it got real. Another name that you mentioned uh, as a running buddy that I kind of wanted to ask about just because he's been somebody that I've been fascinated with lately that I, I can't take my eyes off whenever he's in the ring. Mark Curtis. Uh, he's just so fun to watch. And I know there's there's a line of thinking that uh, you know, you really shouldn't be seeing the referee that they're there to fade into the background. But I can't help but watch Mark Curtis because he's always doing something in a way that's just a little funny. And I don't know if he's trying to pop guys in the back and, and just, you know, do something weird just to get a smile out of somebody. But he's just so much fun to watch. Uh, and it seems like the man that, that he was really well liked. You know, there was big, big tributes after he passed. And and uh, those shows were, you know, attended by people from all three major companies that were uh, going on back in the day. What was, what was Mark like uh, off camera? Just a, just an amazing guy, man. Uh, talk about a loss. You know, you, we talk about the whole Benoit thing and that's a different kind of emotion. And then you, you, you tell you, you, you asked me about Mark Curtis and, um, and then I start to smile. Uh, not because we, he, we lost him way too soon, but because uh, he just it was such a fun guy, such a great guy. Loved the business probably even more than any of, of, of the rest of us who all love the business. And, um, and just was the most nicest, kindest, sweetest guy in the world. Uh, uh, just I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. We did a trip when it was obvious that he wasn't going to probably make it. Uh, there was a show in Knoxville. Uh, just a regular house show, uh, and we d- did a tribute show. We decided, uh, me and it was, I don't want to take all the credit. I helped organize it because I'm more of an organizer, but it, the, it was, the idea was Chris and Chris and Eddie and Dean. Um, and then I helped try to put the pieces together. Uh, and it was a house show in Knoxville, and we surprised them, and we made it into a, a Mark Curtis tribute show. And Knoxville was four hours away from Atlanta. Bobby Heenan, Mike Tenay, and Tony Schiavone, who wouldn't, I never saw a house show in my entire life, even if they were in the same city, uh, for whatever reason, drove four hours each way to surprise Brian Hildebrand to appear on his show. Oh, wow. Didn't ask, didn't ask for, 
didn't get, you know, say a payday. I mean, nothing. Mm -hmm. We want to be there. Ric Flair, who wasn't booked on that show, flew himself or drove down to that show from Charlotte to present him with a world title that had his name on it, a replica title, um, as a surprise. Uh, let me tell you something. I've been around this business a long time. To get people like that who, you know, are nice guys, but Bobby's uh, one, was, was, is amazing. Tony's great. Mike Tenay's great. I mean, all those people are, are great guys. They all have hearts of gold. But it's not every day or every year or every, every, every ever that they're going to get in the car and drive eight hours round trip to pay tribute to somebody. So that just shows you how much respect and love and admiration he had. Uh, yeah, we've lost a lot of guys in this business. And the one that the ones that still I can't get over are uh, Mark, uh, Johnny Grunge, Ted Petty and um, Kurt Hennig. And not to take away from anybody else, because there's a lot of fantastic people that are gone to that were gone too soon. But uh, those are the ones that still really get me. Uh, and considering that grunge was sort of self, you know, kind of his own fault, uh, that's it's hard to, to feel bad. Um, and, uh, you know, I like, I guess a little less for Kurt, but I'm not trying to, I don't want to put anybody, I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just saying, you know, it's one thing to live a lifestyle that causes something to happen. And it's another thing to get cancer or have a heart attack. And like Ted Petty did at 50 years of age and drop dead. Now, there was something, uh, I, did you happen to read the Guy Evans Nitro book that came out a couple of years ago? I read almost all of it. I, it's funny because I, I, I got to the end and something came up and I had to put it aside. That was like a year ago. I never got back to it. It's almost like I don't want to relive the end, uh, like in the back of my mind, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, it wasn't purposeful, but I just never yeah. have gotten back to it. But I read a lot of it and... It really opened my eyes I, I, to to uh, I knew that Turner didn't want us uh, once Time Warner and uh, AOL merged with us. It really opened my eyes to how much they didn't want us. Well, there's an anecdote in there uh, related to Mark Curtis. That's that's where I was. I was headed. Oh. And it uh, we could we should talk about the end um, after after this section. But I was curious. They talk about Mark Curtis had some of his ashes put into the pyro that went off before nitro is like a final tribute to him. I was curious if that was something you were aware of at the time, or was that, uh, was that news to you when you read the book? No, no, I knew about it. I don't remember if, if they told people before they did it or they told people after they did it, my <laughs> recollection, and I could be wrong cause we were running so hard back then, but my recollection is, is that they told people afterwards, uh, but I could be wrong. They could have told some people before. They could have even told me before, and I'm, I'm misremembering uh, it. But, um, but yeah, that's a true story, and I, I didn't learn about it reading in the book. I knew about it then, and that's just the kind of guy Mark was. He loved the business. He was so happy that he got to be a part of the Monday Night Wars and WCW. And, and uh, uh, you know, a quick Mark Curtis story. He, uh, he had beat cancer one time and then came down with it again shortly thereafter. But in between... Um, me and he had come back off uh, on the road and me and Dean Malenko and uh, Mark had rented a convertible. We were driving for, to, uh, through Wyoming to uh, Sturgis for the pay-per-view. And for whatever reason, we decided, let's get a uh, let's put the top down and, and see the world, see the country. And um, we started putting like these 70s because we all love 70s music. And we started putting the 70s uh, uh, pop music in. And 
at first, you know, you know, at first Mark is like humming along, and, you know, by like a day into the trip, we're all singing on the top of our lungs, the windows open, the wind's blowing and, and having the time of our lives. Just so happy that Mark's back on the road with us. And it's just one of those memories that I'll, I'll, I'll always take with me. Now, you're not on uh, the NWO sold out pay-per-view from 97. That's the next kind of big show that we've got. But it's a really unique show with a lot of different production aspects that were different from the pay-per-views that we were used to at that point. I'm curious, were you at the show? Were you doing anything working on that? Or were you just enjoying a Saturday off at home with the family? No, I was there. I thought, and I could be wrong, probably wrong, because you would know better than I. But I thought that they, I, I started the show and they kicked me out. But, oh, that could be. I haven't got to watch it yet. I yeah, yeah. I just picked it up the other day and I picked a match at random in the middle. So that could have yeah, been yeah. just after you were dismissed. Yeah, let me let me know. But I'm, the way I remember it, and I could be wrong, because like I said, it all runs together. Yeah. Um, uh, is that I started the show and that they ran me off. And yeah, I, I, I watched the rest from the back. Unfortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Not remembered fondly, I guess, for for some of the entering, but I just think the look of that show with all the bikers around and and all that, it seemed like, uh, you know, probably a lot of fun in the building. Yeah, I mean, it was different and anything that was different was fun. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the Sturgis stuff because I thought that there was a lot of thought it brought out a bad elements of a bad crowd, you know, Harlem Heat getting over, really booed probably for the wrong reasons. Yeah, uh, we, we I, talked about that a lot when we watched that show. It was I, uncomfortable. Yeah, so I, I you know, wasn't a huge fan personally, and I never said anything because nobody gave a crap what I thought. But um, but uh, but it was always but but it was always cool experience to see something that you'd never seen before, and 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 I've I've never seen again since the last one. So I, I just thought it'd bring out an element of fans that weren't there for the wrestling that were there for the party and uh probably had some bad intentions in certain ways so now you started to talk uh, a little bit earlier about the end of wcw and i i think that's probably a good good place to to close with uh what was your experience like with uh you know it was very sudden all of a sudden they announced on the website that wwf has bought you guys and then there's one final nitro uh, what was it like coming to work that day? And, you know, was there overtures made towards working at WWF or were you pretty much just off to, to find new work at that point? So, as I said earlier, I was sort of on a good track in WCW, but we knew that there was problems and we knew that there was issues. We didn't know to the extent that we know now that probably even if it was the number one rated show on cable television and they were making a profit, it would have been sp- done away with they did not want to the, the the people that bought turner did not want a wrestling company they didn't care if it was making money if it was popular and while it still was in the top 20 of the cable rankings nitro uh it wasn't making money so it made it easier to get rid of it as we all know eric tried to buy it and that was a little exciting but you know a lot of it was up in the air nobody really knew um you know, I had no idea what the due diligence period was in a, in a purchase of a company at the time. And there was back then it was just at the very beginning. You really couldn't Google it. Uh, so you had to start, you know, asking people. But, you know, they were in their due diligence. part, And I know that there was some stuff that they found that the investors didn't like. Uh, but I think they were still planning on going through with it. And then, uh, like I said, I woke up one day and somebody called me and said, I don't remember who it was and said, uh, turn on the splash page. And I said, okay, is it good news or bad news? He goes, not good news. Mm. And 
I saw that. Wasn't totally shocked, but the finality of it was was what got me. You know, uh, I wouldn't say like it blew me out of the water. Like I never saw it coming. I mean, obviously, I was working in the booking committee. I was working in talent relations. I saw what was happening, and it wasn't moving in a good direction. But mm-hmm. but uh, uh, it, it 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 the finality of it was was got me in. You know, what are you gonna do? You can't you can't bury your head in your in the sand and 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 you know hope something away. So uh, I took five minutes to feel bad for myself. Eh, if I'm being honest, I probably took about five months to feel bad for myself. <laughs> uh, but but I went out on that last night show and I said if I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna go out making sure these people have a blast. And I don't I probably was at best the best as I ever was as far as getting the crowd ramped up because if I hadn't ramped myself up. I would have probably cried. So, uh, and when I say cry, I don't mean sobbing, but it was it was emotional. And um, so it's funny when uh, it was over, and we all know what happened. Shane came out and it said he bought the company from his dad. And uh, when it was over, Shane, I went back to the back, and um, Shane stopped me, and he said, "You did a really great job out there." And I said, "Wow, that means a lot. Thanks." And I thought to myself, well, maybe you never know. So keep a positive attitude. Um, I got a call from Jim Ross and Johnny Laurinaitis. They were meeting with talent in a – one of the things that saved my ass, just to be quite frank, was that I was an employee. I didn't make the big money that a lot of the talent made as an employee. I still – I did fine for myself, but I didn't make the hundred, you know, $250,000 contracts. But one of the things that saved me was that uh, – I got eight months of severance and full health care for my family oh, and full, yeah. full, full pay. It gave me some time to figure out what I was going to do. And um, it, it's funny, the week, I'll, I'll go back to the story, but the week that the XWF hired me was my last week of severance pay. So, I mean, I just bridged that gap of not having a paycheck coming in. Uh, and my wife wasn't working, so I don't know what I would have done. But I, I sort of sort of knew the XWF was in the cards after a while. Anyway, going back um, – they, they set up meetings with all the talent in a hotel in uh, Buckhead. And uh, so I walked in and said, hey, to Jim Ross and John, you know, John is like, you know, probably said something like, don't you wish you would have, don't you wish I, I could have been your assistant or something? I don't know. Probably said something wise asked to break the, the tension. And Jim said that um, our plan right now and things could change is for WCW to be run as a separate entity. And when it's run as a separate entity, we want you as the ring announcer. So, you know, we can't, we don't have any promises. I don't have a contract for you. I don't have an offer for you, but that's our intention. And if everything goes as planned, then you'll be working for WWF. And so I said, cool. And then I went and started watching and I saw what happened in, uh, in, where was it? Washington State. Tacoma. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew that didn't go over well. And so the next week is very interesting because the next week I got a call from Laurenitis. And he said, you know, your name came up at the production meeting in, in Tacoma. And I said, really, how's that? He said, well, somebody asked Vince who the ring announcer for WCW was going to be for the match. And Vince said, well, who's the WCW ring announcer? And somebody said, David Penzer. He said, well, is David Penzer here? Nope. I'll have Stacy Keebler do it. So oh. the, the next week was in Atlanta, where I lived. Mm-hmm. So he said, come down as my guest, bring your tux, leave it in the car so people don't think you're assuming things. 
And uh, let's see. He goes, there's a lot up in the air right now, but if Vince decides to move forward with this angle and um, and uh, he says, you know, the opportunity arises, I'll let him know that David Penzer's here this time. So I went, and first time I ever got to meet Howard Finkel, he was gracious as could be. Everybody was really gracious. Um, we just hung out for a while, talking to old friends, and Johnny came out. They had a real, real long production meeting. It lasted till like almost 4 o'clock, and uh, the, the thing went live at 8. And um, he said, listen, they've changed this whole thing up. They're going to involve ECW now and, and turn people heel from WWE, and it's no longer a WCW thing. Uh, so sorry, but thank you for coming. You can stay and watch the show if you want. And I was like, eh, I think I'm going to go home. And um, so that was that was the end of that. But then the XWF came along, and that was a, 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 an opportunity. And then the Piper thing came along, and that was an opportunity. And I uh, then I, I branched off and did some other stuff uh, with airbrush tattoos. That was very successful. My problem is I had too many business partners. And... Um, and then the economy tanked in 2008, and so then uh, I had to recreate myself and, you know, had some time with TNA, and that was a blast. Uh, and, um, you know, I know I'm glossing through everything. If you want to get into anything else after, you know, uh, WCW went out of business, I'm happy to talk about it, but I know this is a WCW-centric show. Um, and, uh, and you know, like I said, uh, I became a realtor when the uh, tattoo thing went belly up, although... We still have a couple of venues, although obviously nobody's going to be doing airbrush tattoos this summer, even if places <laughs> even if places open again. Uh, I, I, one of the places we're in is Bronx Zoo, and I reached out to the guy the other day because I know New York is is, is the epicenter, and I, I reached out. I just said I, I texted him and said I wanted to make sure you and your family are okay, and he text he never texted me back. This is like uh, uh, on Friday, and I never heard anything, so I was actually worried. So yeah. I, I I emailed him today and I said, hopefully you change text message numbers or you, or you missed the text message for whatever reason. But I'm just really worried about you and your family. Please let me know everything. You know, I pray everything is OK. And he wrote me back. Yeah, sorry. I must have missed your text. Everything is OK. By the way, there's no way we're going to be able to do tattoos this year. And I wrote back. I've never been so happy to to lose my business. <laughs> I just assume that nobody wants somebody touching them, putting on airbrush tattoos, um, you know, two months after, three months after a pandemic. So, uh, but anyway, so I became a realtor and, you know, been dabbling a little bit with uh, t doing the TNA stuff, which came out of left field totally. And, um, and, you know, I've been doing, I, myself and a guy called Barry Rose, who's a historian of championship wrestling from Florida, uh, do, uh, CWF Fan Fest, usually twice a year. We're going to do something at the old Fort Hesterly Armory during WrestleMania weekend, but we all know that all that was canceled. So um, so that that's an abbreviated version of the rest of my story. I'm happy to talk about anything, but I, I know it's WCW-centric, so I don't want to go off on another non-WCW tangent. Well, uh, I did want to ask about the commentary that you recently did for Impact Wrestling. Uh, was that something that was new to you or is that something you'd you'd been wanting to do for a while or how did that come about so this is the whole thing there's a couple of really funny uh parts to this story the part one is at one point in wcw i started doing uh, wcw europe nitro europe which was just wcw nitro the two-hour version but it was sent a week late 
And I did it with Larry Zbysko. The reason they had me do it was Dusty Rhodes, who had power at the time, said, <laughs> said, God bless Dusty, said, you need to, I can't, I'm the only person in this business who can't do a Dusty Rhodes impression, by the way, so I apologize. <laughs> but you could hear Dusty Rhodes' voice. Uh, he, he said, Penzo, we need to get you doing some play-by-play. And I said, I'm up for anything, Dusty. What, you know, he goes, yeah, Shivani ain't going to be doing this stuff in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get that story to Cody somehow. Uh, <laughs> Lo and behold. So pop. But, um, but, but, but so for six months I did, and I had to pitch to myself in the ring. So I used the, the name Dave Lawrence. And yeah, I, by six months in, I was okay. But, you know, if I'm being totally honest, Abisco carried me most of the way. Um which I appreciated. And um, so the story is funny is um, uh, my wife, you remember the episode of AEW and they brought Gary Capetta in to do a weigh-in? Yes. Yep. So we were watching and I watch, usually watch that live and, and live tweet about it. Uh, mostly just to be entertained by Jericho. Although I like a lot of what they do and some of what they do, it leaves me scratching my head, but nobody's perfect. And they seem to learn from their mistakes, which is refreshing, actually. So um, so my wife, when she was going to bed, she said, kind of looked at me sideways, and she said, you're, you're not upset that they called Gary and not you, are you? And I was like, no, not at all. I said, I wouldn't have been right for that spot anyway. Gary used to do that kind of stuff in WCW. I said, I never did any of that stuff. I was hardly featured, like you, like you started out the conversation by saying. Uh, I said, I'm done. You know, I'm done. I'm not going back to wrestling. Uh, you know, I have my little podcast, and, you know, it's cool that I have Twitter followers that, you know, might actually give a crap. And um, people like you who, you know, I could PM, DM, whatever you call it, and, and, and will fill in the blanks of, that, of, of my life. Uh, that I don't remember, but, um, so I said, all right, well, I'm glad you're in a good place. Just thought I'd ask. And, um, two hours later, I get a text message from Scott Demore. Hey, what are you doing next week? And have you ever done play by play? And I said, yeah, 25 years ago for six months with Larry Zabisco, uh, and I'm not doing anything next weekend. And he said, all right, I'll be in touch. And I thought about it, and I didn't know if it was for impact. I didn't know that they want what they that they were doing a TNA special. I mean, for for a week, uh, a 24 hour. Nah, I don't want to say 24 hour period. For about a 12, 14 hour period, it was just okay. I'll get back to you. And um, so it just so happened I got invited to a, the WrestleMania launch luncheon that day. And um, Stephanie, it was at Raymond James Stadium where the it was supposed to be, and Raymond James. Uh, uh, Stephanie McMahon was the keynote speaker, and after she after uh, she spoke, she came out and she took some pictures. So I had never met her. Uh, one of the things a lot of people don't know is that when Paul Levesque first came into WCW, he rode uh, for about the first six months with me and Pee Wee. Oh, wow. So, um, so I went up and introduced myself and said, you know, my name is David Penzer, and could I have a picture? And somebody else took the picture, and... And I told her, I said, I don't know if you've ever, if you know who I am, I don't expect you to, but uh, uh, Paul traveled with me as I was the ring announcer for WCW. Paul traveled with me and Pee Wee Anderson uh, for the first part of his career in WCW. Uh, you know, I hope he's doing well. And she goes, I knew that name sounded familiar. She goes, Yeah, I've heard the stories. 
So I was like, well, great to meet you. And so I put I put the picture on Twitter and I said, well, that meeting went better than expected. So the whole thing, <laughs> as much as my Twitter could blow up, it's not like it went viral and started trending, but as much as my Twitter could blow up, even Charles Robinson texted me and said, Are you coming in? <laughs> <laughs> he never did respond when I said I was joking because I think he was a little embarrassed. <laughs> Charles has nothing to be embarrassed. Charles is a sweetheart. Um, but... Uh, so as that's going, as that whole thing is blowing up, literally at the same time, then Scott Bob Ryder calls me and t- fills me in on the details and says we need to book the travel. And I told my wife and I said, "Funny, you, that, you remember that conversation we had yesterday? Uh, you know, you never believe what happened." And um, I, you know, look, I was a little apprehensive. I hadn't really done play by play on a national basis ever, and what I did was pre-taped and uh, you know carried by Larry Zabisco. Uh, at first they were going to try to get Scott Hudson to do it. And I figured out oh, that'd be easy. Cause I'm dead. at that point, I'm just doing color and let Scott carry it. Um, but then Scott wasn't available because of work. So then, uh, Scott Demore said he was going to do it. At that point, I knew that I was going to have to carry my load. And so I started getting a little nervous, but I was like, if I don't do this, it'll be the biggest regret, you know? So I just, uh, like in the old days, I wrote a lot of stuff down. I just, we tried to tell instead of calling matches because I'm not great at calling matches. I just we tried to have a sense of humor about the whole TNA thing and, you know, uh, manic teaming with suicide and all the different suicides. And I got a couple plugs in for the podcast. And uh, I, my, the plan was for me to do play by play for the pay-per-view. Uh, but since paper and I'm hoping if, if and when the pay-per-view happens, that's still the plan. And uh, short from Mike Tanay, uh coming out of retirement. Uh, which I love, by the way. I would love to step aside because that's who should have been there, Mike and Don. But uh, short of that, uh, I, I guess I'll be doing the play-by-play if they ever do that show again. But um, I think it turned out pretty good. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't exactly call it play-by-play. It was, I think I guess it was more telling a story, which I guess is what has become what 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 play-by-play has become anyway, mm-hmm. through through Vince's style of storytelling and and as you saw. I, I, it tur- I'll be honest, it turned out much better than I would have ever thought. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the next coming to JR, far from it, but uh, for a one-hour little deal, uh, I wasn't embarrassed or humiliated, and that's all that was important. But, uh, well, it's been, it's been a lot of fun for, I think, us WCW fans. Uh, with alternative products you know, kind of making a comeback now, we get to see Tony Schiavone back on national television every sure. week we, we get to have you come back and make appearances with impact and it's, uh, and it's funny i wasn't supposed to ring announce but whoever they hired was couldn't uh, and i don't want to i don't even know the guy's name i'm sure he's a nice young guy just you know somebody called and said hey could you come ring announce for impact wrestling and said sure and the producers were just having problems with them uh in the pre-show matches so at the last minute, literally the last minute, as as the matches are going on, the referees are running to find out where these people are from and what I'm supposed to announce. They said, Penzer, we're putting you on ring announcing. And I, what am I supposed to say? I could have said no, but that would that would have what, what, what that would have solved. So, <laughs> so I wasn't supposed to be doing that. I thought I was just doing the one hour thing and, and getting paid for two days work, but I ended up earning my keep. And uh, and you never hey. Never say never, man. I'm 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 in a good place with Scott Demore, and uh, uh, you know, you never know when that uh, when you might get that text at, at midnight. Well, we certainly appreciate you coming on the show and talking. Uh, we've we've talked and 
a tease for a future episode, you will come on and review a Nitro with us sometime. So yeah, very much like looking I, forward to having that happen. Uh, like I told you, I've never done that. So uh, so this will be my first. Uh, I'm giving you my word that I will not do it. If anybody else calls, I won't do it until uh, until we get to do it with you. Um, and I appreciate your support. I, I, I've never met you, obviously, I don't think. Um not lately, I don't think. No, we were uh, we were going to at a Starcast, and then I actually never asked what happened. They they changed something around with your times, and there was a very limited window, uh, and I had other autographs that I needed to go get. It, this was the first Starcast, uh, so we changed, did, we never ended up yeah. connecting there. They they changed what my job was supposed to be. Uh, uh, Jeff Jarrett wanted to use me at the last minute to to do the host the fight stuff along with SoCal Val and. Uh, Don West and some others. And so that might, so that limited my availability. And quite frankly, you know, it wasn't like 150 people signed up for an interview with David Penzer. We had 15 or 20. So we just knocked him out at the appropriate time. I know some people uh, had more important things to do and couldn't, and were double booked. But now you've been a great go to source and and a good quote unquote uh, Twitter friend. And uh, look forward to meeting you one day and buying you around. All right. Well, the show is sitting ringside with David Penzer. You'll definitely want to find that one. There's been a lot of great episodes for WCW fans like me. Uh, Nick Patrick, I know, has been on there. The Steiners. Uh, you, you can go, you know, look up the show, look up the archives. And uh, I, a lot of the modern guests are great as well. But for yeah. me, it's it's always fun when you're talking. We, we cool. broke some stories. Nick Patrick, for the first time ever, told the true story about the Sting uh it's episode number two. It's the second I've done, and we're up to almost 200. Uh, told the story for the first time about what really happened at Starcade and the count. Uh, the whether whether it was a fast count or it was supposed to be a fast count that turned into a slow count. He told the true story. Took us through that whole day. Um, Buff Bagwell told the story that for the first time, and that went viral about when Eric had approached him about kayfabe and the boys, and he was supposed to die in a plane crash, and that never happened. Oh right, so, yeah. So every once in a while, we break a story. I told the story about the whole. Benoit, um, on the on the podcast that Demore did a couple weeks ago, I told a story that had never been told before about how I discovered, and it was a mistake, it was a screw up uh, on uh, Chris and Nancy's part, how I discovered that the whole thing was a work way before they confirmed it to anybody else. Uh, if you want to check out that episode, um, I talk in depth, even more depth than I did on this show about Benoit thing and uh, and tell that story. So. Um, yeah, J.J. Dillon even told a fun story about um, one time that nobody he had never told before about uh, Dwayne Johnson coming up to him at one point and asking uh, if J.J. could help get him into WCW because they had guaranteed money back then. And uh, Dwayne had said, look, you know, I'm always used to having a little bit of money in my pocket and I'm broke and I don't want to be broke. So I want to go where there's guaranteed money. And J.J. went and got him four hundred dollars in cash and said, now there's money in your pocket. Stay here. You're going to be a huge star. <laughs> wow. So. So, uh, so yeah, so, um, yeah, I've been blessed and, um, and, and, and excited to do it and, um, and excited to do your show, been wanting to do it for a while. So I, I love how you keep the memory of WCW alive. Uh, uh, there's things that I forget that I, like I said, I, I turn on, I turn on Twitter and something pops up. I saw you put something on, uh, Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis. Uh, I think you did today. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, him holding up the belt before yeah, a match yeah, just kind of yeah. doing a, funny twirl around with yeah. it I, and that was that was, that was his deal that put a smile on my face so <laughs> so so th- thanks for having me and um i'm looking forward to doing the uh the drive-by deal it should be fun and i'll be nothing but brutally honest so it, it'll be a must listen if you have any interest in what i have to say which 
Some people do, I guess, but most people don't. <laughs> All right. Well, congrats on the success of the podcast, and thanks so much for uh, joining the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I still wish I had your voice. Let's get ready to thanks, guys. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Again, his show is Sitting Ringside with David Penzer. You can also find him on Twitter, at David Penzer. If, you, if you're interested in hearing a lot of inside stories from Nitro alum, definitely give his podcast uh, a listen. And if you want to keep hearing from us... Stay tuned right here to where the big boys play 20 years of Nitro. Nitro.